Hi, I'm John Burlingame, and welcome to For Scores. In this podcast series, we're taking listeners on a magical journey into the world of film and television music. Each episode, we'll go behind the curtain and speak with some of the most accomplished and iconic composers of our time. They've never had the opportunity to reveal to fans the special moments, the challenges, the emotional journeys of the music. All of that which truly transports us into another place, another world, another time. We're here speaking today to Henry Jackman, composer of Wreck-It Ralph, Ralph Breaks the Internet, Captain America the Winter Soldier, and Captain America Civil War. Known for his deft weaving of traditional orchestral elements with electronic textures, Henry was a child prodigy. He was raised in a musical family and found his way into scoring through a life in pop music. Here's part one of our special two-part episode with Henry Jackman. So Henry, where are we? Uh, right now we are sitting in my Los Angeles studio in a very pleasant area where I'm lucky enough to see uh, blue sky, trees and birds, which is uh, probably not what would happen uh, in, in my old London studio. What's the advantage of writing here? Um, I love mornings and I think it's easier. Um, you're not badgered. You're not thinking logistically or sensorially. There's something a bit dreamish about the morning where you actually get a lot done without quite being conscious of what you're doing. So since you're a film composer, um, we tend to think that composers are inspired by the imagery, maybe, mm -hmm. the script, whatever. Um, does it help your inspiration level being in a lovely neighborhood? Ultimately, when you're thinking about a movie and a narrative and a, a thematic idea, it's so abstract that your connection with it is really your imagination, your intellect and the idea at hand. And if you were sort of put in a pod orbiting around the Earth, it probably wouldn't make that much difference other than the gravitational difficulty of trying to work in space. So your previous concrete jungle was London? Yeah, I mean, I've, I lived in Brixton at one point, which is not a renowned rural area. <laughs> Tell me about your family background. My father was a composer, and I was born in Hillingdon uh, in London, north, sort of, you know, on the outskirts of London. My parents moved to the countryside when I was about six. Um, so it wasn't, uh, let's see, yeah, I think it was around about six. So it's a big change going from London to uh, endless fields and I'm talking about countryside where the guy who comes past the house is in a tractor covered in chicken crap going, <laughs> you're right boy. <laughs> we were considered like outsiders, like, oh, we got, there's a new kid from London, they're, they're from London. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that was interesting. But then I went back to London because I was, for my sins, a chorister in St. Paul's Cathedral Choir which was an amazing experience. That's a, that's a pretty high, highly rated... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, there's a big tradition that's not quite the same here of cathedral choirs, and we thought we were the best. Obviously. How old were you? Eight. So the, if the, looking back on it, I didn't think too much of it at the time because you're just living the life you have, but the equivalent, I guess, in terms of the professionalism and the standard required, it would be a bit like being in the London Symphony Orchestra aged eight, meaning we were the... The school I went to only had 38 pupils, and those 38 people were the 38 boys of the choir. So you were constantly singing in the Sunday services, Oh, right? Sunday, forget Sunday. Uh, uh, at least five hours singing a day, 
uh, it would be in the cathedral every day. Sunday was uh, a service at 10 o'clock, service at uh, 1 o'clock, service at 5 o'clock, and we were there Christmas Day. Wow. Um, it was sort of Harry Potter, but instead of magic, it was cathedral singing. You, know? <laughs> you saw your parents for three hours every two weeks, and uh, you know, it, was, it was a bit like a monastery, if I'm going to be honest. So you obviously had a sort of a, a deep sort of classical uh, yes. training from a young age. Yeah. Um, How long did that last? Uh, pr- well, from from the cathedral choir we're talking about, eight years old through high school, round about 17, the rebellion started. <laughs> well, I mean, I was actually very lucky because my father, who was obviously very happy that I was going to... And you, he was a composer, Yes. Uh, but it... It, on paper, it looks incredibly conservative, like, oh, my son will go to uh, St. Paul's Cathedral Choir School to sing uh, you know, 16th-century church music and then be a music classical scholar. And da, da, da. But nothing could be further from the truth. The thing about Dad was when I was a kid, I would be as likely to be summoned... to I, I, the, 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 Any time he got musically excited, I had to be summoned to appreciate what he was appreciating. And it would be as likely to be, he'd call down, Henry, come to the kitchen. And I'd come downstairs and there'd be a score of the Miraculous Mandarin and Bartok um, opera and it would be blasting out and he'd be pointing at this unfeasibly complicated uh, orchestration, expecting me to appreciate it like he did. And then the following day, a similar summons could happen. Henry, come, come listen to this. And it would be the fretless bass line on a Paul Simon record. You have to check out this bass line. It's absolutely sick. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. So, so he, he was so eclectic. He, uh, my father's only um, judgment for anything was if it's any good. So if a fretless bass player is, is out of control, it must be listened to. And if the orchestration on Bartok is just amazing, it has to be, has to be witnessed. So, it, so did you inherit that sort of eclecticism? Yes, well, uh, I didn't think of it as eclecticism. So, so even though I had all this classical education and everything, back at home, the education I was getting from Dad was that anything is good if it's imaginative. And that could be, um, like I say, Bartok, or that could be, you know, the Pet Shop Boys. So what... At what point was your rebellion in full swing? Well, yeah, the rebellion actually wasn't really against Dad. It was more that having gone to St. Paul's Cathedral, I had the most incredible experience of singing at the... You know, I, I sang in services like the Falklands Memorial Service. I turned to my left. It was Gorbachev, Reagan, Thatcher, the Queen, and Lady Diana, you know, 20 feet to my left. Wow. Well, you know, these sorts of experiences. And then I was a classical scholar at the next school, Eton, uh, as a music scholar. But that somewhere around about 17, a friend of mine showed up with an Amiga 8-bit computer that, that had a, a really basic sampler on it. Just around about that time, a lot of um, house and dance music was kicking off in the late 80s, which to my ear at first, have, with all this classical training, I was like, oh dear, I'm afraid some of these harmonic, <laughs> some of these, are, like if I can just lean to the piano, there was one really famous one that went, You know, with a house groove under it. And I remember thinking, no, no, if you go... You can't do a parallel B-flat minor if you... But of course, all that was happening, they'd sampled the chord. And they were just going... So the harmony was following the... And uh, it wasn't long. So after a sort of brief period of thinking, oh, I'm not too sure about this electronic music, I just completely converted... And so my mother's chagrin was mostly then found for two years, <clears throat> failing to do any piano practice and piddling around with my 8-bit sampler going... 
<laughs> all day long really really loud thinking oh this is amazing and to my father's great credit mum was going this is a disaster you know what the hell's happening and dad's like well, just let him you know this is obviously this thing's kicking off you know I mean it's not the most harmonically sophisticated music in the world but there's something about it and he's probably not going to do it for the rest of his life so just let you know let him have his fun Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores Playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including Henry Jackman's Ralph Breaks the Internet and Marvel's Captain America the Winter Soldier and Captain America Civil War. The Four Scores Playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the soundtracks you love whenever you want. So what happened then? Did you start to get work in the record business? Yeah, I then, well, I then went to Oxford to continue the sort of, you know, ivory tower experience. I, even at that point, I think my mum was like, don't go to Oxford, you'll just get kicked out or leave. Or, um, and I thought, no, 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 I'll be all right. And sure enough, you know what? <laughs> I am out of here. That was it then. And by the way, it sounds like I'm being very rude about, I mean, you know, if you're doing sciences and whatnot, I mean, Oxford has some amazing degrees it's just that it was very conservative music and i was already moving into an area i'd had so much classical background I didn't yeah really at that one. point you know yeah. practically decades of it exactly i'd seen enough ivory towers and wanted to see a bit of grit the funny thing is i do remember my dad saying listen you know at some point you're going to get a bit bored of drum and bass and all the beats and technology and whatnot not that he was so open-minded not there's anything wrong with it but if you've had the background you've had and you've sung talis and played you know, um, Respighi and an orchestra. You've got sort of you've got the history of music from about 1350 up until you know the democratization and the emergence of pop music, and you've got art music somewhere in your bloodstream from 1350 to sort of you know to Benjamin Britten, and it's not going to go away. So I'm just saying, I remember him saying to me, if you ever get a chance to do film music, you should think about it. And I remember at the time, who, who said that? My dad. Really? Was, yeah. And I remember thinking, because when, when you got your hoodie on and you're banging out beats and whatnot, you're like, film music, that's like some old-fashioned crap for like, <laughs> isn't that what old dudes do? You know, because I was very young. Right. And I forgot all about it for a while, because my uncle started to let me join him. He, he was a big mix engineer. He'd recorded Prince and Michael Jackson. He was hanging out with Trevor Horn. I started to show up to Trevor Horn's empire with my li little sampler. We should probably explain who Trevor Horn is. Trevor Horn uh, uh, was a what well, is a legendary record producer who in the 80s pretty much, I mean, revolutionized record production. He, he, he did stuff like Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Seal and God, I mean, it, just anyone who's interested, just type in Trevor Horn and look at allmusic.com. So did you wind up working with him? Yes, but it started off as me just as a sort of idiot at the back of the room. <laughs> um, I started working more on, you know, that side of things, it, you know, in the pop industry, as it were. And there came a day actually at Oxford where I had a choice between some German company flew in and said, would you work with this artist? I, I remember a day where either I could write another essay about the difference between troubadour and trouvert music in 14th century France. <laughs> Or, or jump in a helicopter and sign something and go and hang out with some artist and start working in the record industry. And I sort of thought about it for about four seconds and uh, decided to split. 
At this point, I wasn't even thinking about film music. I was being too cool for school at that point. Didn't want anyone to know I could play like, you know, like Brahms Rhapsodies and whatnot. Hooded top, sampler, beats. You know, I was the beats dude for a bit. <laughs> you know, I didn't want any. It was the sort of classic Vickers son type um, scenario. So at some point, did you actually make an album? So I, I did this album called Transfiguration that had classical ideas and a lot of electronica and it had real choir and orchestra and whatnot. It was a sort of not as good version of Vespertini. My template in my head was homogenic and Vespertini, these, these Bjork albums. Still not thinking about film music. Uh, this CD uh, a friend of mine had called Elisa Da Silva and she gave the CD to Bob Badamy. And Bob Badamy one of our great music editors. Oh, legend, right? So he, Bob Maddie, he's seen everything. I mean, if you saw the list of directors whose movies he's worked on, it's, you know, it's the full gamut. And he was Hans's right-hand man. So you can... Hans. Hans Zimmer, right? Uh-huh. So you can imagine how many people are trying to get a CD to Hans. He's never going to see it or hear it, whatever. Unbeknownst to me, this sort of lucky chain, this shows how much you need luck. It's all very well thinking you might be quite good at music, but you need, you need a bit of luck. So Bob hears this and decides this is actually quite interesting. Whoever did that, I mean, it sounds original, it sounds like, you know, leader, who, you know, who is this person, blah, blah, blah. And he gives the CD to Hans. Hans says, oh, no, this is actually, where, you know, where is this individual? You know? <laughs> so I was in my little studio in West Hollywood, and I get a call, uh, and Hans is like, this is good. Hans' <laughs> <laughs> impression. But, you know. But he called you. He called me, yeah. And uh, I think... Were you ready to jump into film music? No, I, not, not, not at all. It, it was brilliant. It was sort of like a... a it, the thing about Hans is he's brilliantly aggressive. I don't mean physically. I mean, I think his second sentence was just something like, you're wasting your time in the record industry. What are you doing? That's idiotic. I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> but he's already way ahead. He's obviously listened to this thing thinking, this kid has obviously got all manner of harmonic chops that are just meaningless in pop music. And he, he's already concocting a plan, you know. <laughs> almost, I'm way behind, just sort of going, oh, uh, yeah, never done music to picture, you know, all this. You know, because Hans's proposition was like, well, why don't you just hang out and sort of see how things get done? I'm working on this little movie right now. So I said, what's that little movie? Like da Vinci Code. <laughs> and I literally, it, it was like an apprenticeship, you know. I was just lucky to be in the room and sit there and just... I'd never seen a meeting between a director and a composer. And you can read a book about that, or you can sit in a room with Hans Zimmer and Ron Howard. Yeah. And, I, you know, if you're lucky enough to get the second, it's... it's so incredible. what ensued, I guess, was a, a few projects with Hans. The big break came with, again, uh, I think I'd sort of shown I wasn't an idiot. Uh, you know, I, I hadn't... I'd, I'd just been helping. You sort of slid yeah, into yeah, the... Yeah, yeah, exactly. It wasn't... And the picture was? Monsters versus Aliens. Uh-huh. You know. Um, was this your first solo credit? Yeah. Then? So it's uh, <laughs> talk about jumping in the deep end. <laughs> I missed out all of the, I guess, traditional route in the middle to do with TV and sort of coming through the ranks. I hadn't even thought about film music till this weird sequence of events. Other than I was getting frustrated with working in the record industry, and I had this massive classical background. But for some idiotic reason, I'd never put. Two and two. It's like, well, film music is a godsend because it's nothing to do, even if you're a very flexible, creative recording artist, the, the parameters of what your audience have come to expect should you be successful are such that you can't go completely crazy. Whereas film music, I mean, one movie, it might be set in 11th century Italy in a monastery requiring plain song as your overall influence. 
And the next movie might be Captain America. The next movie might be a contemporary film dealing with American corruption in Iraq. Or it's gonna project to project swing so wildly that far from being a, di a frustrating disadvantage to have all these different colors in your toolbox, you're going to need all of them. Yeah, exactly. And suddenly that becomes a strength instead of like, oh, how am I going to resolve the fact that I've been equally trained to write a Bach chorale or, you know, bang out a dubstep tune. You know, this is how is it all? That's what film music's for. In the last couple of years, last few years, you've done a couple of fairly successful pictures, shall yeah. we say, yes. including Wreck-It Ralph and Ralph Breaks the Internet. Let's talk for a second about, uh, about those pictures. And I think we should start with Wreck-It Ralph because mm -hmm. it was, I think, something we hadn't seen before. The entire picture consists of video game characters. Yeah. How much fun was it to sort of come up with sounds for video game characters? Oh, it was great. Whilst it's true that what was so original about Wreck-It Ralph is it had one of those conceptual conceits, a bit like Toy Story, where they have a life of their own once the humans have gone kind of thing. In the same way that in Wreck-It Ralph, the kids play the games. So Vanellope and Wreck-It Ralph perform their function, as it were, within the 8-bit video game. But once the arcade game shut down, they have their own life. They go to the bar, you know, all the rest of it. So that transposes to the music, meaning if you think you're going to get through the score, but hey, look, I've got some cool synth sounds, you're going to get stuck because there are the universal ideas of friendship and betrayal and aspiration and heroism and all these things. So what it is, you still need to consider the film as requiring a thematic element. And ultimately, by the time you get to act three and the stakes are high, uh, the symphony orchestra in its usage is getting increasingly leitmotif-esque and symphonic. So you, you need both, basically, is what I'm saying. So, so is the symphony orchestra still the best way to achieve emotion in a viewer? No, I, I'd hesitate to say that because it depends on the circumstances. If, if it was, say, an independent drama and you needed a very beautiful cue, it would actually potentially be very pompous and pretentious for there to be a giant symphony orchestra raging but if you are dealing with a giant King Kong creature made out of 7,000 Wreck-It Ralphs that have been manifested due to his own insecurities in a titanic battle that, uh, and the virus is spreading, destroying the whole city, there is an aspect which flows through kind of almost Austro-Germanic tone poems like Mahler and, and, you know, the history of... Suddenly the history of Western classical music is your friend. If you're trying to go for something enormously uh, elevated in the symphonic element. So, uh, for certain kind of movies, but I, I would hesitate to say that the, on the only way you can have emotions with an orchestra, it's more like when things are becoming operatic in their magnitude. One of the other fun things about Ralph Breaks the Internet um, is the presence of the Disney princesses. <laughs> yeah. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Yeah. And... Uh, and I was noticing during the score and then reading the credits later, you did have to evoke certain specific classic Disney sounds. Yeah. So you can imagine on Wreck-It Ralph, the, it's like, oh, well, this is fantastic. You know, we've got a scene with, with almost every known Disney princess. So guess who? I mean, there's a little bit of complicated, but, but instead of, it, it's a no-brainer. Let's use as many <laughs> princess themes as we can fit in. Not only that, the one that I thought I might not get away with, because we were doing so many of these references and some become more expensive than others, 
is when Vanellope is caught by a stormtrooper doing illicit <laughs> pop-up activity. <laughs> I was like, oh no, we have to have. But in a slightly Wreck-It Ralph way, you know, I d- I, and um, you know, the directors were well up. And for you that. did get away with it. Yeah, that. absolutely. Not only did I get to sort of completely insult John Williams by having slightly Wreck-It Ralph synths <laughs> as well as the traditional orchestration, I got to do something that was... Uh, maybe me and a handful of people would notice. One of my favourite moments in film score, and I would always recommend this for anyone to listen to, there's a great iconic moment in music in The Empire Strikes Back after you've had... and you've had all the um, diatonic fanfares and then you get to... and then it goes... suddenly the harmony just completely melts as the... Um, text has disappeared and you, you sort of pan up and you know you see the imperial it's one of my favorite transitions ever and in wreck it ralph uh the second one i was like is there any way we can go and you know where, where, where i and maybe a handful of musos will be expecting that sort of atonal dissolve it we can dissolve it into a princess uh <laughs> harmony with a bit of celeste and make it all diatonic so it's a sort of you know i mean it's such an insider joke But it sounds like you had great fun. Oh, with it. yes. And, and they said yes to all of it, you know. When, <laughs> but you family. can imagine circumstances where I go, look, it's a little tricky in terms of pull out the score. We were very respectful. It was note for note until these other bits. The John Williams parts were absolutely from the Empire Strikes Back oh, score. You know, yeah. it's great fun. Yeah. And of course, at the end, the rescue. Uh, when the princesses rescue, uh, uh, I think the cue was called A Big Fat Man in Need of Rescuing. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Um, same thing. Uh, lots of quotes from the from the from as many princess themes of the Disney heritage we could we could squeeze into the fifty two seconds. Or whatever. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Four Scores. Please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and let us know what you think. Leave us a review and tune in for the rest of the season. We're talking to so many incredible composers, you won't want to miss a single episode. Watch Ralph Breaks the Internet and listen to the soundtrack wherever movies and music are enjoyed. Four Scores is brought to you by Disney Hits, the happiest playlist on earth. The most beloved songs from classic Disney films curated weekly into one magical playlist for all ages. Disney Hits is available on all major music streaming services, and it's as easy as asking your preferred voice-activated device to play Disney Hits. For collectible music products from your favorite Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Lucasfilm soundtracks, go to DisneyMusicEmporium.com.